the digital euro is on the move. Yesterday, the Governing Council of the ECB approved the opening of the preparation phase. It will be a journey, and we will walk the journey together with the legislator. All European institutions will be involved to make sure that Europe is equipped with the currency of the future. Cash is here to stay. You will have all options, cash and digital cash. So what does it mean for you? For consumers, it would be free and easy to use everywhere in the euro area. All of that, of course, is subject to the legislative process. Cash or digital, the choice will be yours. Your euro, your choice. And that, of course, is friend of the show, Christine Lagarde, telling us, don't worry about the instability of the euro area monetary experiment and odd political union with very muddy representation that doesn't seem to be able to have a coherent decision-making process around large issues. It's cool. They're getting a digital euro. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. It's on the move. It's on the move. The investigation phase has concluded and preparation phase. Well, that begins on November 1st, 2023. It shall last two years where they will finalize their rule book. They'll select all the little middlemen that are going to be built into the system and they're going to do testing to make sure that it meets all the needs that a user needs from a digital euro. And, you know, she said cash isn't going to go away three times, so I trust her. I don't doubt that at all. The trend in many European countries is already against cash. I think most notably the Nordic countries have very low cash usage. And I recall reading about cash limits in France for transactions, and they were pretty low, like around 3,000 euros is sort of the limit of a cash transaction before you start to run afoul of uh, laws about recording tra- reporting transactions and needing to get documentation from people you're interacting with. So I think that if nothing is done in the next two years on the cash front, you know, it might just naturally dry up given the slightly hostile environment to cash, the way that costs are being imposed on businesses who transact in cash. Everyone's being nudged into digital payment systems. And what's and what's completely standard for a statement like this is that even though they've spent two years doing a study of how a digital euro might be deployed, there's going to be another two years to kind of finalize the project. So nothing is going to happen for five years, at which point whatever decisions or conclusions were made in this period will become kind of out of date and beside the point. What I think is sort of interesting about this announcement is that one, to me, I think it speaks of the rock and the hard place that the euro as kind of a second tier currency finds itself in. The euro is not used for a large amount of international payments. And actually, since the war in Ukraine, the euro is used even less for international payments because a large usage of the euro was between European energy buyers and Russia as an energy supplier. And if you have any conspiracy theories around the US is perhaps comfortable with conflict between Russia and the European Union. I mean, one issue is that when the European Union starts using euros to pay for energy, the US tends to get upset. That started happening with Saddam Hussein, and Saddam Hussein was toppled pretty soon thereafter. The same was sort of true with Russia. Obviously, Russia started the Ukraine conflict and kind of, you know, big own goal on their side. But that conflict led to the petro-euro dying in the cradle very quickly. The other interesting thing is that if you read the preliminary report, a stock take on the digital euro, there's actually some pretty detailed 
analysis of how they think a system like this might work. And the TLDR is, I think they just read a couple books about credit card processing, and then they swapped out a few names. It's basically, you're going to have payment service providers, the same way you have credit card processors, but instead of a sort of private clearinghouse, there's going to be the ECB at a point in this system that finalizes all transactions. How will this save money and be free and be efficient, it has to be a state subsidy because a system like this is not efficient. It's actually very expensive to operate a credit card payments network. And that's why fees are pretty high. You know, there are per transaction fees and there are also percentage fees. Why can't I make a credit card transaction for 50 cents? Because there's no way to make that profitable. The only way to make a system like this viable for smaller transactions and compete with cash transactions is to completely subsidize it. So ironically, it introduces more inflation into the system. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes and in there, like around page 18, you can see a diagram of how the system works. And it's fundamentally designed to enable middlemen. And you nailed it, Dad. Like they, those middlemen have to make money and either do it through fees or you do it through some sort of subsidy. This, to me, feels like when sci-fi writers of the early 1900s and the 1920s and the 1940s, they'd illustrate or they'd write stories about what the year 2000 would be like and what the home of the future would be like and the car of the future. But they they couldn't really see beyond the current world. So they, they saw like even bigger, fancier 1950s versions of cars that could perhaps fly. And when they saw the modern home, it had all these conveniences, but it was still a wife in an apron who was a housewife. And it was just, they could only dream and they could only envision the system that they knew. And this is what this, this system is. It's clear that there were stakeholders that want to be involved and they could only really build a system that they already knew. And they essentially just created a state-sponsored credit card processing system. And uh, the digital euro is on the move. And you're right. It's going to be another two years before this really even is in kind of past research phase. And then then it has to go through all of the standard legislative processes. Now, I'm sure they can grease that wheel, but that could still take a year, even if they could successfully grease the wheels, it could take a year for that to work its way through all of the different legal processes. So we could be looking at six, seven years before this thing is done, and the financial situation will only continue to get worse. Their need to lock people into the existing system will only get stronger. And the case for Bitcoin, day by day, conflict by conflict, decision by decision, only gets stronger. A short plug for Lynn Alden's book, Broken Money, because her narrative around the history of monetary standards introduces a new dimension that I think is missing from a lot of the academic and popular discourse on the subject, which is that our state of technology and our communication systems in particular determine a lot about how money is used and how efficient our monetary system is. And Lynn makes the point that for 200 years, problems in financial systems have been solved with increasing centralization, which has led to a highly efficient but fragile system. My own takeaway is that the efficiencies of centralized systems are leading to inefficiencies in terms of wealth and political power distribution, i.e., you might have a highly efficient financial system, but because it's centralized and therefore allows people with political power to wield influence over who gets to use the system and how, that actually, that policy, that biased non-neutral policy results in massive massive inefficiency in terms of less economic activity, less economic opportunity, and increasing wealth concentration, which is very inefficient because there's no benefit for someone being able 
to have 10 homes when you have many people without a single home. You know, there's obviously an efficiency in sort of needs being met by many people as opposed to small groups of people having their needs met many times over. The digital euro and CBDC systems in general, I think that they're an example of an extremely centralized solution, taking the centralized solutions even further. And so there's an interesting narrative question and conflict on the horizon, which is we have to see what happens as centralized power, centralized financial systems interact with open source decentralized money like Bitcoin and what the effect will be. We think that Bitcoin is robust enough to weather these sort of challenges. My question is, will traditional centralized finance be able to handle it? It is a fascinating study of human psychology where they decide, well, this hasn't worked very well. So what we need to do is double down on what we've been doing and just do it more. So let's centralize more, but it leave it to the central banks and the states to create the ultimate altcoin, right? This is what the people will end up with is the coin of all coins. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pond recorded on October 20th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... With me, Chris, getting packed for El Salvador, and glad to be here. Welcome back, everybody. On today's show, we're going to discuss a clever malware payload mechanism that leverages Binance Smart Chain to hold malware payloads for injection into target systems. Very clever, and it might be the killer app of Web3. We also want to give a shout out to Jimmy Jong, the infamous or famous Silk Road hacker. There's a great story and documentary about his life and conviction for wire fraud. Look forward to chatting with him when he gets out of jail and hope he's okay. We also have a major lightning CVE detailed and disclosed by Antoine Ricard. It also shows up in Optech 273. So we will discuss that, what's going on, what we need to do about it, and if it is a long-term issue. In economics, there is a nice little article about Bitcoin versus inflation with a great infographic. TLDR, Bitcoin beats inflation if you hold it long enough. We have also discovered a surprising enemy of privacy. Aston Kutcher of That 70s Show owns a stake in a CSAM, is that correct? CSAM? Yeah. In a CSAM scanning company and wants the EU to eliminate end-to-end encryption so he can sell them CSAM scanning software. We also have news that Coinbase is sort of pulling out of India. And in education, not only do we have the Bitcoin Optech 273, but we also have Fidelity Investments' latest Bitcoin report, which honestly is just a primer on Bitcoin. If you have someone who says Bitcoin, I don't really get it, just link them to this report. It's excellent. And that's our show. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Let's start, though, with the answer. We finally have gotten the answer. What is the real use case for a centralized, quote unquote, smart chain? Well, I think we got it. And Binance Smart Chain solves the fee problem in Ethereum. If you've been around since Ethereum's launch, you'll remember that Ethereum was initially sold as a low-cost, high-throughput blockchain. And it turned out that with demand for smart contracts and secondary assets on Ethereum, very quickly Ethereum fees became quite high. And that's not necessarily a problem, but it does price out quite a few use cases for Ethereum. And actually, friend of the show, Paul Storks, will tell you in detail how 
Ethereum fees are quite a bit higher than Bitcoin fees in terms of the amount of fees received by Ethereum miners and stakers now. So Binance decided to essentially create an Ethereum fork called Binance Smart Chain, which is Ethereum virtual machine compatible. So you can just take your Ethereum code and run it right on Binance Smart Chain. But what they did was they just run it on a single node. So instead of having to do complicated consensus and pay stakers or miners and run redundant copies of the entire chain and distribute it, you just run it on one massive server and it's super efficient, just like we were talking about before. Sounds great, right, Chris? Well, you think maybe the banks could just look at that and go, let's copy that idea (laughs) because it's really just a big bother to decentralize the whole thing. That's just who wants that? And one of the benefits of having a centralized quote-unquote blockchain is your fees are very low. And so what this attacker has done is they've basically embedded some arbitrary data, which is their malware payload, into the Binance smart chain in some kind of smart contract. And then when their malware penetrates a target host and then calls back to their content delivery network to get the major payload, I'm assuming this is a standard malware pattern, though I don't know too much about it. They just use Binance Smart Chain because Binance Smart Chain appears to be harder to take down than, you know, random VPSs on, oh sure you know, shady clouds. I, I guess because right. you don't have to then create fake personal information to rent a VPS and whatever, and then the VPS eventually gets uh, blacklisted by Cloudflare. It seems that Binance is able to keep the BSC front end or, or, you know, RPC server whitelisted. And therefore, this is actually a pretty cheap way to store data and then pull it down to target hosts. And it seems that they can just update the payload by making another Binance transaction to update the smart contract data. So it seems pretty convenient. And one detail is that because Binance runs the whole chain, they allow you to call the smart contract and and sort of like read the smart contract for free. So Binance is essentially subsidizing the transmission cost as the malware reaches out to the smart chain and pulls down the payload. As you describe this, I think, why haven't they thought of this sooner? This is great. Wow, what a a great opportunity for malware authors. And you know what else? This is just going to be great for crypto's reputation in general, especially with the tech bros out there that are already skeptical of anything that has to do with cryptocurrency. This is really going to help improve their attitude about it. People are going to love this because whenever you make malware economical and cheap to distribute, so that way you can get malware on a system and then easily coordinate the command to control in a non-traceable way, that's just great. And to be clear, you can do this on Bitcoin. I mean, with inscriptions or ordinal inscriptions, this is completely possible. The issue is you need to have a Bitcoin node that allows you to sort of do the RPC calls to to pull the data onto the target systems. So I think that the cost of Bitcoin transactions, the cost of storing data on chain doesn't make this appealing right now, but this is completely possible on basically any open system. And I think that it kind of demonstrates how these systems have to be costly. You know, this is clearly not something we want to keep on all of our nodes. So we need fee pressure to incentivize people to use the blockchain, quote unquote, the right way, whatever that is. There's also an element of, and not everybody's there yet, but more and more people will over time, sats are hard real money. Like, who cares if you're going to go blow some BNB tokens, you know, and you got a dollar for dollar or something. That's 
that's worth it. But real hard money, mm, people are going to be, there will be people that are do- totally willing to blow that, but that's only going to scale so far, especially as the fees go up on the blockchain. So I, I, I ultimately think these chains that have, you know, just totally worthless coins, you know, in the long run, those are more susceptible to people being, being willing to just play around and burn those. Absolutely. Not to jump to the fidelity report too soon, but there's a track record here for Bitcoin. There's a price history. It's pretty clear that there's a trend with Bitcoin. And so even though you can technically write a novel on the back of $100 bills, no one's ever done that, or very few people, because it's obviously a bad idea. Whereas with these highly speculative centralized altcoins, there's really no cost to experimenting in a slightly reckless way with them. So I guess that's kind of a benefit, maybe. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Yeah, when I think of Jimmy Zong, I think of, I think I picture him on a boat. I just think of these sort of ridiculous things that were painted about him in the media. But this was the bloke that got some sort of basic money printer out of Silk Road, right? He could withdraw funds over and over again. And then he inevitably, they trace down these coins years later, and he's in jail now. He's been given a year and a day sentence, which... At least it's not too long, I guess. And we talked about Jimmy when the first story came out about his arrest. Essentially, he's accused of wire fraud and defrauding the U.S. government because the U.S. government then seized all of the Silk Road bitcoins. He essentially discovered the ATM shooting money into the street equivalent in Bitcoin because the Silk Road wallet had a bug where you could withdraw more funds than you had in your wallet. Should he have done that? No. Should he have given the funds back to the Silk Road? Yes. But what I find really interesting about the story is just that Jimmy seems to be like a very relatable and kind of nice person. And it seems like he got all the money in the world and then he sort of blew it partying. But also he seemed to be looking for friendship, for connection. And it turned out that, you know, buying people a lot of drinks at the bar and throwing wild parties wasn't really great for that. I have to say that like reading the article, I feel for the guy and I am excited to see what he does when he does his time because he seems to have a lot of skills. I mean, it would be fun if he comes on the pod eventually. So that's the only reason I put it in there. (laughs) Maybe one day. Wouldn't that be great? Well, and it's also a message to people who are into Bitcoin or crypto. There's this idea that you're investing now and then it's going to be worth so much money in the future and you're going to have all this money and you're going to, you know, finally just achieve everything you ever wanted. And the truth is that financial security is super important. Money can buy you a lot of things, but there are some things that it does not solve for you. The need for personal connection, for meaning, these things are not solved by money. I think that's just something that's important to keep in mind, especially because this is the Bitcoin dad pod. You know, we have to Hmm. throw in those moral opinions, I guess. Well, that's the dad part. So there has been some discussion this week, a lot of noise on Bitcoin social areas this morning, actually, about a potential issue with lightning that could be rather significant. And I have trouble identifying the severity of this problem because it's a one paragraph note in Bitcoin Optech. And all it says is that Antoine Riard posted to the dev mailing list. He has the full disclosure of an issue. He'd already responsibly disclosed it to developers. And the most recent versions of Core, Eclair, LDK, and LND all contain mitigations that make the attack less practical. But the underlying concern is not eliminated. So it sounds like, one, we all need to update our Lightning nodes right now. And two, there is still a vulnerability. 
what exactly is the vulnerability? They call it, I guess, a, cy- a cycling attack or a replacement cycling attack. You have a channel open to an unknown node, so an operator you don't trust. This cycling attack could, I guess, drain the funds from the channel to their side, essentially stealing your funds. There's some sort of security assumption in Lightning that is being subverted here. Right. And the issue is that it looks like the atomicity of Lightning is being broken on a certain level, in that a Lightning payment cannot be paid unless every node in the chain, you know, there's an HTLC on the incoming link and offering an HTLC on the outgoing link along this chain. So it seems that somehow this attack, maybe it allows you to get the required HTLCs to forward a payment, but it somehow prevents you from ever spending the HTLC. So I think what's going on is that it's making the Lightning protocol unenforceable on the base chain. Right. So a hashed time lock contract. And the kind of best mitigation would be to just open channels to nodes that you know and trust. Because this is really the problem is, is if you open a channel to somebody you don't know and they have nefarious intents, that's sort of your risk profile here right now. I feel like this issue does raise enough concern that I think it will inspire some to start taking another layer two development very seriously, right? I don't think we're I don't think we're screwed here because I think if we need to remind ourselves what we expect from Lightning, I don't expect the the security of the blockchain itself of the, of the layer one. I I think most of us think of it as mostly a, a point of sales alternative to the credit card system. And so, if you are doing this for financial transactions, I've always thought it was a little reckless to open channels to Lightning nodes you just don't know. And that's why I, I've never really liked some of those smaller liquidity systems that connect you with unknown nodes. It's always sort of been a little bit of a, of a risk to me, but it sort of forces you to, to, to reach out and make social networks with, you know, actual real social networks with uh, Lightning node operators. So you know who to, or you have to think about it based on your business. Like for, for JB, I, I open channels with Fountain and Albi and the podcast index and the, and the co-hosts and, you know, things that just make sense. And then audience members that I've talked to on Matrix. And that's sort of my system. But that's not available to everybody. But I think you kind of, if you really want to be confident, you have to kind of operate with people you know, at least at some level. And uh, that is just a social thing. It's, it's not a technology thing. But I think this might inspire more people to work on another Layer 2 solution. We've talked about how Lightning seems to be developing into a B2B network. And I think that this attack emphasizes that part of the risk calculation of using Lightning is establishing some trust with your channel partners because Lightning sacrifices Bitcoin security for instant payments. So I think that in a sense, many of the major Lightning players will not be affected by this vulnerability. At least they won't be affected for a large amount because it's unlikely that a large node that generally is sort of identifiable socially is going to screw you for a few hundred dollars in a lightning channel. The issue is when anonymous attackers can, at scale, exploit many nodes for tens or hundreds or thousands of Bitcoin across the network. And it doesn't appear that that is possible at this point. Well, since we're on a roll with clips this week, there was some pretty remarkable audio from SEC Chair Gary Gensler yesterday as we record. He was making, after remaining totally silent on the topic, he has made comments uh, about considering multiple spot ETFs. We'll play a little bit of that audio for you. 
We didn't appeal last Friday. I think that's accurate. Um, so you could well, still in the well, future in another well, form. But what we have in front of us, just so that the viewing public understands, we have not one, but multiple, I think it's eight or ten filings that the staff and ultimately the commission is considering for what's called exchange-traded products, for, for Bitcoin to be in a, in, a, in a security. So the Bitcoin would be held, and then there would be something called an exchange-traded product. And that would trade on various stock exchanges. And those filings are in front of us. I can't prejudge any one of them, but there's eight or ten that we're looking at. Then as we record this morning, uh, an hour ago, Coinbase said that they are, quote, confident the SEC will approve their spot Bitcoin ETF, uh, a spot Bitcoin ETF. And then JP Morgan's executive also said this this morning that he expects the ETF to be approved within the coming months. And... um BlackRock just yesterday updated their spot Bitcoin ETF application after they got some feedback from the SEC and a couple of others have also refiled again with updates based on feedback from the SEC. While at the same time, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is describing a flight to quality in crypto. He doesn't say Bitcoin, yeah. but he says and, and crypto is quality. Yeah, he says he's, he doesn't say Bitcoin. He explained in an interview, I think it might have been Fox Business, but he said because, you know, just for, for just keeping himself like CYA covering his own butt, uh, because they're specifically looking at the Bitcoin ETF right now, he's not going to say the word Bitcoin. But he said that, you know, he referred to, he'll refer to it as crypto and you can kind of infer what he means. He said something I'm, I'm summarizing, but he said in that interview that when he speaks of crypto, he's speaking of Bitcoin, but he can't say the word Bitcoin just because he wants to cover his butt. Um, there's another thing that was really remarkable this week that uh, I probably should have led with because that's what Gary was starting with is the SEC did not appeal that court decision on the grayscale Bitcoin ETF that really kind of kicked off this next kind of round of anticipation. What that means is that they're probably done fighting. And Gary kind of confirmed that in his sort of political type of speak saying that, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to appeal that. We're going to let that court decision stand. And now our staff is reviewing these ETF applications. And specifically, the court decision was a case brought by a case brought by Grayscale that challenged the SEC's approval of Bitcoin futures based investment products, but not a spot based product, because logically both products, their price is determined by the spot price of Bitcoin. My own personal view is that futures based products were approved first because I think there was an idea that futures-based products could actually put downward pressure on Bitcoin prices, whereas a spot-based product naturally takes kind of a long-only position and so would have put upward pressure on Bitcoin price. I think that this progression with the SEC slowly being unable to deny a Bitcoin ETF is a reflection of the fact that the United States still has courts that still sort of function. And so you can stand in the way of a Bitcoin ETF, but you actually have to make pretty good logical arguments about why it's not allowed. The SEC's arguments were not good enough, and eventually a judge ruled that they had that they had to either come up with new arguments or sort of allow the approval processes to continue. It seems that the SEC has run out of ideas. They've thrown everything at the wall in terms of denying an ETF, and we're probably going to see the next bull run 
with ETFs available for normie and institutional investors, which suggests it's probably going to be a very exciting bull run, in my view. Let's hope World War III and some massive worldwide recession doesn't screw it up because you combine that with the happening and then once the election is kind of over and resolved, you could really have yourself uh, a recipe for a pretty good run. The longer I sit with this news on the ETF, the more comfortable I've become with it. I think there's probably going to be some banks that are going to screw around and find out with Bitcoin. I could see that, you know, maybe some paper Bitcoin shenanigans. We're going to see all that kind of stuff. But I keep having conversations with family members that are a generation older than me, and they just, this is the world they operate in. And they're interested more and more in a little bit of exposure to Bitcoin, but they have zero interest in a Coinbase account. They have zero interest in learning RoboSats. I mean, I'm not even kidding when I say, like, the conversation ends. But uh, I think if you look at something, you know, if they have something that comes from a financial institution that they've been working with for 30 years, 40 years, or in the case of my grandparents longer, you know, that I think they trust. And I think it's perhaps how many normies, we've always wondered how are normies going to hodl their Bitcoin? Well, maybe a lot of them are going to hodl it inside an ETF for better or for worse. And I'm grateful that for those of us who care, we'll still be able to self-custody. And I think I'm always going to myself. I, I can't really imagine ever owning any of this ETF, any of these ETFs, unless there was some sort of an immense financial benefit where you could leverage it a bit. To me, it just seems like it's always going to be best to own the prime asset. I think that the killer app for the ETF is being able to direct your 401k and other stock-based retirement accounts in the US to buy the Bitcoin ETF. It's been possible to create self-directed retirement accounts with the help of an accountant and a financial planner so that you can kind of create your own tax advantage vehicle to buy Bitcoin with. But very high hurdle to do that. It's not something you would do if you were a filthy casual. So this makes Bitcoin long only exposure very approachable for huge numbers of people and institutions. So it's probably going to have a very positive effect on the price of Bitcoin. The downside, of course, is that you get none of the censorship resistant, unstoppable money self-custody benefits of Bitcoin. And all of this Bitcoin is going to end up in a custodian, and it will likely never, ever, ever come out of that custodian. So that's kind of the, the downside. Is there a point where so much Bitcoin is being custodied by regulated entities that this undermines the usefulness of Bitcoin as money or somehow undermines Bitcoin security assumptions? We'll have to see going forward. That's always a possibility, to be frank. I am less concerned about uh, that. Uh, I, you know, I could see them attempting silly. I mean, this is like long down the road, but I could see them attempting silly things like forks and and whatnot. But I, I have a very, very, very low probability score for that thing actually being successful. I think if they would have gotten in a decade ago, if they would have been smart a decade ago, they could have locked this thing up. They could have locked up the mining operations. They could have locked us all up. But they weren't um, paying attention. So for some folks for over a decade have just been stacking away, stacking away. And it is now nearly eight, not quite, but nearly 80% of the supply is being held in wallets that are just slowly adding a little bit at a time. And if you've been adding Bitcoin to your wallet a little bit at a time over time, you are very likely beating inflation. There is a nice Substack post from Coinometrics, which has a great kind of triangle time chart that demonstrates that depending on when you bought Bitcoin, you very quickly achieve relatively high real returns that are much higher than any potential rate of inflation. There are some caveats. 
and you can see it in the chart. People who buy at the top of bull markets tend to be underwater for three to four years. And so if you bought during the bull surges in 2021 and 2022, then you are still quite negative on your position. Yeah. But as the historical data shows, Bitcoin is doing its thing, which is inflation protection over time. Yeah, this really kind of puts it like four years. I've always said five years just to be careful. But, you know, when you said this, the first thing that I thought of is this is going to be all the ETF bag holders. They're going to come in as this thing's popping, right? Because it's going to take a little bit for the market to to figure it out. It's going to take a little bit for it to reach everybody. And they're going to be coming in as this thing's going up when right now would really be the time to be stacking. And this was kind of something I wanted to discuss with you because we're in the setup for another bull run. I would bet big money with you that we're definitely going over 100K this cycle, probably over 200K. And there's always the possibility that it's the quote unquote final cycle where Bitcoin market cap hits a large number, probably around the gold total market cap, which is I think $10 trillion. And at a much higher valuation, Bitcoin as an asset goes through some kind of phase change. Like you heat up water enough, it phase changes into gas. At a high enough valuation, Bitcoin becomes something new, something different, reacts with the rest of the financial economy in a new and different way. And we don't have the same kind of up-down volatile cycle, or it takes on different characteristics. I don't want to sound too unreasonably optimistic, but frankly, I think it's always been a possibility and it will happen at some point, in my view, and this might be the cycle it happens in. Because as you pointed out, on the one hand, ETFs mean there's probably a lot of institutional and retail investment going into Bitcoin in the next bull run. On the other hand, we're in a world of increasing conflict. And if you scroll down the Coinometrics article, there's a chart of US regional banks deposits and how the deposits have stopped dropping in regional banks and therefore the regional banking crisis is over. I would disagree with that because I don't think that the financial crisis looming on the horizon for the US banking system is a deposit crisis. I think it's a real estate crisis because try as they might, businesses cannot get workers back in the office. Demand for real estate, especially high quality commercial real estate in the inner city seems to be at a permanently lower level. And we're entering a period of fiscal dominance where government spending seems to be the mechanism driving inflation and financial liquidity throughout the system. And there's a lot of spending that needs to happen at a government level. Not only do we have aging populations, but we also have conflict, which is highly inflationary. These are the reasons why I think it's not likely this cycle that we see things really pop off. Because I I don't think you see Bitcoin really moon until we really have energy solved. I think that's, that's always going to be a anchor around any kind of economic boom and really kind of any mining boom too. And without energy really kind of solved, I think Bitcoin suffers because the Western economies are going to be surging and then dipping and surging and dipping kind of in a whipsaw effect until they kind of normalize that. And we don't really seem to be on any path to actually address it in a serious way. So I suspect that that will be kind of a dark cloud over economic activity. And so if liquidity is tight, inflation remains high. The only scenario where Bitcoin really pops off in that world is where 
mass amounts of people identify it as separate from sovereign risk and outside the system and a flight to security. And that would be... That's exactly what I'm saying. That's where they should end up. But we today exist in a world where I think the vast, vast majority of the population considers it a risk asset and not a flight to safety. Because there's so much complexity to understand why it's a flight to safety that I just don't see that getting sorted out in the next few years. And then you combine that with all of the economic kind of black clouds we have. I mean, we're so on the precipice of kicking off events that could just destroy the Western economies for a decade. You combine that with the incompetent leadership that if we end up in any kind of World War III type scenario or some sort of energy war that escalates, you combine that with the incompetence of the leadership. That just seems like how does Bitcoin really moon? How does anything really moon in that environment unless it's unless people have have somehow come to a 180 in their opinion of the asset? I guess this is the phase change I'm talking about, because even now, as there's sort of consistent sideways to down pressure on stock market indices, Bitcoin seems to be decoupling from those indices. It seems to be treated different differently than money losing tech stocks, which are still crashing. I agree, but I think that's temporary because of ETF hype. See, my my scenario is ETF hype hits, having hype is com- it's combined. We get a pretty good bull run up until the spring. You know, assuming we don't have other sort of economic uh, dark horses, whatever. Uh, but then having hits. Bitcoin, because of overall economic conditions, doesn't continue to moon. It actually slides a bit. I think after the halvening, I think Bitcoin slides a bit until the fall, until after the election. But I, I hope I'm wrong. That's kind of, I just, I don't know. I think the I think the reason why we've finally seen the separation of the S&P and Bitcoin is because there's positive news on the horizon for Bitcoin. And there isn't really positive news outside of AI, but even that's beginning to falter for tech. And tech is really what's driven the S&P. And when you saw people investing in tech, they were also investing in risk assets. So for a long time, they were correlated. Now we've seen a separation, but that's simply because there's good news for Bitcoin and there isn't good news for tech. But this news will end. The ETFs will get approved. The reality will set in. The economic conditions at the macro level will still be the overall driver of liquidity. And I suspect after the halvening, when the difficulty rate goes up and we have some capitulation in the mining industry, which generates bad news, I think we see a summer slide. But I hope I'm wrong. I hope we see a bull run because I I would like to be in the scenario that you're proposing where we have to kind of consider if we're going to sell, how do we sell right? And what are the conditions in which we sell? Because that's a scenario where people are generating some wealth. And I think that would be really great for people after the last few years. Right. I mean, I think that while it's heresy in Bitcoin to talk about selling, I would say instead that Bitcoin is an asset that gives you the opportunity to swap it for a different asset at another point. And I think thinking about when in your life cycle you need to do that or you want to do that, these are thoughts you should have before the bull run. Because just to remind everybody, when the bull run hits and you're now a Bitcoin hodler, you are going to lose your freaking mind. Humans are not built to rationally withstand the sense of their net worth changing rapidly. You'll feel drunk. 
it's very weird. Do you recall your first bull market? Like, did you have that sense of being like kind of intoxicated the entire time? It it was a magic feeling because every time I logged into Silk Road, the balance was higher than what I deposited. So it's like anytime I wanted to buy something, (laughs) I was just buying it from the, from the profits. Uh, it was an incredible sensation and it, you know, I was like, all right, let's try to do this, this, you know, I didn't do anything crazy, but it was pretty cool to see that. Um, and I had that experience for a while on Mount Gox too, where I'd go to, you know, check the balance and I had, I'd withdrawn earlier and then I go back and it, the balance is still higher than when I'd withdrawn. It's like, wow, this is incredible. Even though there's less in here, it's still worth more. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. And so you just start recklessly spending it. Well, I, I wouldn't say reckless, but you know, I bought studio equipment and things like that. Uh, which which I'm still using to this day. Well, I mean, we all lucked out because you've been making podcasts for 10 years <laughs> and they've just gotten better and better. I mean, that was... Yeah, I got better equipment is what I did. I got used... I, and, you know, I... I don't necessarily regret it. I suppose I'd rather have that Bitcoin than have this mixer, but it has made for content and it's made for, uh, you know, sort of the heart of a small business. But you're right. There is each individual sort of, you know, way to put it is everybody has their own moon, I suppose. And, uh, you know, say Bitcoin got up to 100,000. Well, if you bought at 20 or if you bought at 10 or even 40, it's a pretty good return. Maybe that's all you really need. Maybe that's all you need to go get some real, some property and go build yourself a, a Bitcoin Citadel. Right. Because at the end of the day, we really have to think about our lives and what we want and what we think will happen and choose a path. Right. Nobody ever went broke taking profits. Well, it depends on the underlying rate of inflation and the currency you're taking profits in, Chris. I still, I think the price would have to be above 100000 before I'd consider selling. I'm not sure. Depends on how much I manage to stack while it's low uh, and what's going on in life. You know, if there's some sort of health situation, I'm sort of, I, you know, in a way, Bitcoin is also some sort of self-insurance. But uh, for myself, I I, I really, I really would like to hold out as long as possible, just as a personal goal, as like a, you know, point of conviction, something I've really stuck to. You know, so many people are selling at a million. So, oh yeah. Just an FYI. Oh, yeah. So you better sell it like 900 because you know, it's crashing after that. <laughs> sell at 900, <laughs> buy at 100 or something. It's going to crash down to 600,000 after it hits a million. You know, it's right. going to crash to I know. Pick up those cheap sats at 600K, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's just it. Yeah, it's going to be great. So do we have time to talk about how weird it is that Aston Kutcher has become this enemy of privacy? He's also an NFT scammer. I mean, this guy yeah. is incinerating yeah. all the goodwill of that 70s show so quickly. I, I think he's I think there's like a group of celebrities that are on a list that officials call when they want to promote some sort of initiative or idea or campaign. And like Kutcher and Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. And my favorite that they they hold for just the most important events is George Clooney. I, I, it's like these group of celebrities and a few and sometimes like Tom Hanks, they're like on this list. And when something is going down and they want the people to be on board, they call up somebody on this list and, and somehow Ashton Kutcher <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> and the reason why I make this observation is because I've watched this over the last 20 years as these actors kind of just cycle through like one political issue after another. I'm sorry. I'm just hung up on the fact that Robert Pattinson has been Batman. He's amazing. Have, did you see him in um, Tenant? No, no. You know who I'd like to see as Batman, though? I want to see Tom Cruise do Batman. I'm Batman. Have I gushed no, about Tom Cruise on the show before? Because he's great. I mean, Top Gun Maverick. That guy's a maniac. I think, maniac. That guy's a maniac. Though, I, cr- you know? I, cr- I think I cried during Top Gun Maverick. I mean, you don't cry in Mission Impossible, but I used to think like Tom Cruise, his movies are all kind of the same and he's super weird because he's a Scientologist. But actually, the last time I saw a Tom Cruise movie, I just felt that he really was doing it for us. Like he really lives for his audience. And I just felt so pampered and appreciated. 
And of course he's crazy. Like, how can you be sane when you think that way? Have you, have you looked into the stunts and stuff? Like all his whole history about how he couldn't get insurance and they wouldn't let him do this, the scenes and the stunts that he wants because he was too valuable. So then he created his own production company, but then he still couldn't get insured. So then he created his own insurance company and now he runs the entire thing. So that way he can do whatever maniac stunt he wants. And some of the stunts that he performed for that latest Top Gun movie are just absolutely bonkers. Like, like, like hanging onto the sides of planes while they're flying through the air for real kind of stuff. Well, like and, just, I mean, in, and in the Mission Impossible movie, he is driving motorcycles off of cliffs with a parachute on for real. I mean, <laughs> he is the character. It's, ama- it's just yeah. incredible. <laughs> Sorry for the digression. Not quite as exciting. But there is something going on with Coinbase in India. They made a big deal about going in. And now they're making a really big deal about how committed they are. But I I think there's a caveat. Well, it's hard to claim to be committed to a marketplace when you're kicking people off of your platform and forbidding new users signups. So I think that this is a story about how just because you know how to operate a business in the United States doesn't mean you're going to operate a competitive business in in a different jurisdiction with different legal and political considerations. It seems like it's a tricky environment for uh, all these exchanges and first for actually for tech companies too. I, I hear it's a tricky environment even for Apple to sort out and with their resources, I can only imagine Coinbase. I think the biggest example of this was Facebook attempted a very aggressive campaign in India to get Facebook classified as like a core internet service because they wanted to promote this mobile phone plan that gave you calling and SMS, but also free access to a white list of internet services. And they wanted to put Facebook on that list. So basically, Facebook needs more growth, or they needed more growth before they started to implode. And India was going to be the source of that growth because China was off limits. And so they needed 700 million Indians who couldn't afford a non-subsidized mobile plan to sort of have to use Facebook, to be kind of like railroaded into Facebook. And they were unable to get the political support to make that happen. So that was kind of an interesting failure of a big company when, you know, hitting the brick wall of the complexities of Indian democracy. And I think it's also a story about how a lot of investors have looked at Bitcoin and crypto and gotten the wrong idea. They thought Bitcoin, it's MySpace, it's old technology, there's going to be something that usurps it, but we don't know what. So we're going to buy the picks and shovels companies. We're going to buy the companies that provide the infrastructure for this crypto thing. And Coinbase was one of those companies that soaked up that investment. And I think maybe it has been a good buy for some people, not for others. I think Coinbase has had a rough bear market. They did a lot of layoffs. They're now running into problems expanding their market share overseas. So I maintain Bitcoin is king. Everything else is probably a coin, including Coinbase. Well, speaking of worldwide products, jupiterbroadcasting.com, this here is my little chance to tell you about my podcast network. We got a bunch of great shows over there. We'll have our Linux Fest Northwest coverage. Self-hosted is a banger this week. The founder of Home Assistant joins us, and we get into the controversy around Mazda sending a DMCA to the community, forcing the removal of the integration. We get into some of the details about their year of voice, which are just some incredible developments for open source, local, secure voice processing. And then we wrap it up with a security audit that they just had conducted by two different companies. So it's a heck of an interview. That and Coda Radio and 
Linux Unplugged, and more at jupiterbroadcasting.com. That sounds like a must-listen. I am ashamed to admit that I do not use Home Assistant, and because I live in an apartment. I don't know why that's an excuse, but I've just been hesitant to make modifications to you know a place I might be leaving, and so I guess I've, I've kind of neglected the fun that is Home Assistant. Do you have any ideas for oh, projects I, that are kind of low? I would love, I'd love to give you a tour of the RV and what we've automated and give you some ideas. Depending when you get up here for Linux Fest, if we have time, we could swing by and I could show you. It's, uh, I, I think it's the way to think about it is you're not using Home Assistant yet. You will be. Because if you're into sovereignty and you're into local control and having everything on your LAN and vendor independence, then you're a candidate for Home Assistant. When I listen to some of the automation logic you talk about, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this sounds so great. Because, you know, the reason I love Ansible is you can create this logic inside of these playbooks, these programs that do things to computers. And it sounds like Home Assistant makes that super approachable. And so you can think about like, okay, if it's this time and the exterior temperature is this, I want the blinds to go up or down. You know, it's so interesting. Yep. It's, it makes it makes the home really comfortable and people don't have to fiddle with stuff and mess with dials. It all just sort of takes care of itself. And you don't really, it's hard to really kind of appreciate the value of that until it's implemented and it's a solved problem. And it's really fantastic. But speaking of solved problems, we have an Optech number 273 and they talk about BitVM in there as well as that lightning vulnerability we mentioned earlier. I think that this BitVM description is much better than my attempt last week in explaining what this proposal does. The thing to understand is that this is based on a technology called an optimistic rollup that has a prover and a verifier. That's why it's a two-party system. And so this is an example of innovation, experimentation, shitcoining, whatever you want to call it, from the altcoin ecosystems making its way onto Bitcoin potentially. And so I think that's an interesting development path. I have yet to understand a kind of use case for it, but a lot of interesting technological and cryptographic primitives, they start in these very sort of conceptual use cases. And we explore the structures and the implications of this idea. And then eventually someone either creates a product or discovers a use case that we can then enjoy. That's my two sats. I I completely agree. I'll I'll co-sign those two sats. My use case for this today, right now, I would love to just do fun little bets with you and the JB crew, like, you know, put a hundred sats on this prediction because we cover so many events. It'd be fun to have a little incentive behind the scene to really kind of, you know, dig in and build a thesis. And you know, I just, I'd love a system where if you can prove uh, one or zero happened, you know, bet was went to one or bet went to zero. And then you just, the, the sats end up in your wallet. Like, I just would love a system like that. Maybe there's an app out there that does this. Boost in and let me know. <laughs> so would so there'd basically be the Bitcoin dad pod or Jupiter broadcasting like betting board. And we kind yeah. of put bets on there and people would take yeah. signs. I'm not talking any D-Gen stuff. I'm talking, you know, 510 sats, 100 sats here, there, but just put a little skin in the game. I think that is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I could see a use case there. Because we have a bet going. I keep on forgetting what it is, but we have a we have a bet in the wild yeah. right now. Yeah. We should see. We need a place to keep track of it and a place where the audience can see it and hold us to it because we'll forget. <laughs> there is also a proposed bit for adding MuSig2 fields in PSBTs. Of course, MuSig is a protocol for aggregating public keys and signatures, which takes advantage of the Schnorr digital signature algorithm. 
It's very cool. This is like the next generation in Bitcoin transactions and Bitcoin wallets. It's a lot of neat stuff going on here. The ability to aggregate public keys together to create super efficient multi-sig to have kind of interesting spend trees. There's a lot here. And the fact that it's working its way into the PBST spec is important because that stands for partially signed Bitcoin transaction. And that is the format that we use to take Bitcoin transactions out of software wallets and put them into signing devices to sign in a secure way. It's also a way to move Bitcoin transactions between two software wallets. So it's kind of an interoperability standard. So the fact that this is now incorporating Schnorr signature elements is really promising in my view. Okay, now I've been waiting for this moment literally the entire episode. Uh, I cannot believe how good this Bitcoin report is from Fidelity Investments. When it first came out on the scene, I actually dismissed it because I thought, well, what do they know? But reading through this, I'm going to save this and I'm going to send this to people. And not only am, am I that impressed by it, but I'm actually in the back of my mind thinking this is a brilliant moment to sit back and watch how these different financial institutions embrace and describe Bitcoin and Fidelity is I mean, I'm very impressed. I'll see how they perform over the next few years, but I'm very impressed with this report. Let's just read the conclusion because we don't want to gush too much about Fidelity. Traditional investors typically apply a technology investing framework to Bitcoin, leading to the conclusion that Bitcoin as the first mover technology will easily be supplanted by a superior one or have lower returns. However, Bitcoin's first technological breakthrough was not a superior payment technology, but a superior form of money. As a monetary good, Bitcoin is unique. Therefore, not only do we believe that investors should consider Bitcoin first to understand digital assets, but that Bitcoin should be considered first and separate from all other digital assets that have followed it. I.e., if you're going to have a digital asset portfolio, Bitcoin is probably going to be 70% of that portfolio. That's the TLDR. And they do a pretty good job of nuancing down on that point and describing in non-aggressive, non-confrontational terms why Bitcoin is different than all of the other digital assets and how it is a unique monetary asset. And they do it in that kind of financial investor, just the facts, ma'am approach where we're all in this to make money. So let's do the best analysis possible and let's put all the cards on the table. This is fantastic to see it. It almost feels like a form of validation. And I don't mean to gush on fidelity, but it just I, I can't tell you how many years I've been sitting here listening to all of these institutions crap on something I knew was a superior technology. And it's only gotten worse with all of the altcoin booms. And then, of course, the bad reputation that that brought onto crypto. So to see this now and to see this kind of consistently over and over again this year, it's like the experts, the people that do this for a living to make people billions of dollars are validating a thesis that plebs have been holding on to for a very long time. When you read this PDF, it's everything we've been saying, only it's actual people that do this for a living and do the research and, you know, like... Not just us that have been studying this from the ground forever, but people that are doing these at these high-end institutions that generally have always crapped on it. And so it's a big sea change for me because it's it's lining up a lot with the general Bitcoiner thesis. And this is like the third or fourth we've seen in the last as maybe maybe four or five months. I mean, it's just hit after hit now, but this is one of the best so far. Check out the report. There are some really interesting infographics and charts in there. Also, amazing diehard reference there. Thank you for that. <laughs> now, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can go over to Bitcoin Dad Pod, and there's a contact form over there on the website. But of course, you can just email Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com. If you want to try WeaponX at Bitcoin Dad Pod's over there. 
or perhaps consider that Matrix channel. It's popping off all week long. It's actually pretty low key, but we're usually lurking in there a couple times a day. You can always come and chat with the community or you can send us a boost. We love that. It supports the production of the show directly. There's no middleman at all. It uses the Lightning Network in a new innovative way and it gets your message on the show. Should I take the first one? I could. I just did a lot of talking, so I thought I should let you do it. Sure, we'll do. (laughs) And our first boost, our baller, comes from Bitcoin Lizard, who sent in 105,000 sats listening to episode 104, Trialgate. Is the market becoming rational? U.S. treasuries are selling off like crazy. I certainly wouldn't loan money to the U.S. government. Thanks for a great show week after week. Well, thank you so much for the boost and your kind words. I think one thing to consider when you see U.S. government debt sell-off is that because U.S. government debt is not just an investment asset, but also a money proxy, when it sells off, sometimes that can be driven by bad economic outcomes outside of the United States. Essentially, foreigners, individual business institution, even central bank, they use U.S. treasuries as a savings technology. And then when they need to dip into those savings, they sell off. So there are a lot of forces that interact with the U.S. treasury market, which can be difficult to kind of untangle and determine which force is kind of dominating activity at this point in time. Yeah, it has been interesting to watch, though. Feels like there's something shifting. Thank you for the boost. Baffo comes in with 77,777 sats using Breeze. Baffo bump boost. Thank you. You both are our ballers this week, Baffo. That was a good boost. And Bitcoin Lizard, that was a great boost. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Baffo. Baffo always send good boost. Torped sent in a row of McDucks, 22,222 sats. Have either of you ever come across Bitcoin used for an interplanetary economy? Supposing there is an active economy on Mars, would it have its own blockchain or share our Terra Bitcoin blockchain? Feel free to use this at the after parties when the rum starts flowing down in El Salvador. (laughs) That's a good idea. All right, file that one away. I don't know. What do you think, Dad? I think it would be challenging because of the round trip for light speed communication between Earth and Mars. I think it might be possible to keep nodes synced across that interplanetary gap. But I think as you reach larger distances, the speed of light is a kind of a hard limit on the size of the Bitcoin network. So as you move away from that 10 minute travel distance in light terms, I think you're probably going to not be able to maintain consensus. I think by the time we're zapping sats on Mars, we're probably like on layer seven of the Bitcoin stack. And and who knows, right? Like maybe there's some sort of decentralized grid of blockchains that sync back to a central blockchain, all backed by IPFS. I don't I don't really know. I wonder if you would actually take physical Bitcoin Oh, across the interplanetary gap at that point. You know, I'll say this great problem to have. Wouldn't that be a great, great problem to have to solve? Imagine the imagine like a podcast in the future where the conversations that we're now having are the debates in the Bitcoin dev mailing list about how to implement cross planet transactions. <laughs> that would be a good problem. <laughs> OP 1984 comes in with 4,000 sats. He says, you know, when it comes to SBF and FDX, if it's newsworthy, then yes, I'd like to hear your take. Thanks, Opie. And then I'll share a take I have heard, which is that SBF's defense has been so bad that they might not actually be trying to mount one. What they might be trying to do is to 
create a precedent with their request for more Adderall and more vegan meals for Sam that his human rights have been violated in the course of the trial because the U.S. criminal justice system is so cruel and arbitrary that it can't treat defendants like humans. This is true, by the way, but it doesn't seem to be a problem in other criminal cases. <laughs> yeah, suppose. All right, we'll keep our eye on it, but uh, we'll also keep watching the feedback on the SBF and FTX coverage. Extropian sent in 11,000 sats. Thank you for the boost. Blue Wallet and Nunchuck for on-chain. We were asking for some iOS Bitcoin wallet recommendations, so Extropian is helping us out here. Phoenix and Zeus for Lightning. Enuts for Chaumian Mint, which is private custodial lightning. I, I, I could co-sign on all of those recommendations. I, I am getting very, very close to starting to recommend Nunchuck, especially for... Uh, if you've got maybe kids and you want to have some wallets that you have maybe co-signing over or you want an inheritance system and you want something that's also available on the desktop, Android and iOS, Nunchuck does have a service behind it. Um, and I've always been kind of leery of any wallets that ever need a sign in. I think you can use Nunchuck without a sign in, but it kind of does guide you through the path to create an account and then log in with your wallet. But I do think uh, Phoenix and Zeus are 100% co-signable, and I think Nunchuck's getting there. And Blue Wallet, that's just been solid for ages. Extropian continues, Dad, your node keeps timing out. I'm sorry, I'm a bad lightning node operator. I will investigate. Oh, you're going to get a bad score. Bad yeah, score. I got a bad score. I mean, I also need to <laughs> update because there is a critical lightning vulnerability and I have not yeah. updated yet. He also asked about our thoughts on Fediment and Cashew's scaling solutions. Uh, he says it does involve trust as they're the custodian, but it gives perfect privacy. And obviously not everyone can have their own lightning channel. Is trust a scaling solution? Absolutely. It scaled the traditional financial system to several thousand times its size from 100 or 200 years ago. So I think that trust does work. It just also fails. Is that trust different when the custodian cannot individually identify the users? I think so, because it means that taking action against individual users is not possible. So the custodian can only decide to sort of rug pull everybody or nobody. Maybe that means that the trust is better in that situation. I'm not sure, but it's really interesting. And I think that one neat feature of eCash is that it allows a third party to not need to trust its customers as well. Because sometimes we forget that banks are not evil for tracking every individual and every individual transaction that has an account there. That's actually necessary so that the bank can protect itself from double spend. The fact that eCash does that for you without the need for individual KYC and sort of monitoring is very interesting and could lead to very positive developments, maybe even in traditional financial relationships. Who knows? Anonymous came in with 2,025 sats and just says BIP324 Merd? I am not doesn't sure. Look, doesn't look like it. No, no, it doesn't look like it, but I'll keep my eye out for it. Um, and I'll pick up Halleck here too with 10,000 sats. And he says, steady lads, deploying more sats. And you did good, Halleck. I think it worked. Thank you for the boost. Thank you so much, Halleck. We also had a row of sticks, 11,111 sats from BTC Realist. In my fourth decade of mortgage lending, arms almost always require you to qualify for a higher rate. 
not the start rate. Therefore, nobody does an ARM in order to qualify for more home, since they can afford a fixed rate for the same purchase price and loan amount. Instead, it's usually an attempt to give themselves a bit lower payment, that's all. They're confident they know future rates are coming down. I wouldn't bet on that with my home, and usually am successful in bringing them around. Thank you so much for your boost and advice on this subject. It sounds like BTC Realist is saying from experience that you shouldn't gamble with the arm. Yeah, good advice, BTC Realist. Thank you for the boost. Orange Mark comes in with 5,500 sets. Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Orange, you glad to see me? It's your friendly neighborhood, Orange Mart. Find out more at orangemart.art. Or orange, I should say orange. Find out more at orangem.art. And I am finding out more. It's very orange. And thank you very much for the boost. Mere Mortals podcast comes in with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Personally, I don't need to hear about SBF unless it was something interesting about what he was actually doing with the BTC of FTX customers. All the other gossip and shenanigans is just noise. More stats on BTC use adoption around the world would be great. Well, thank you for the boost and feedback. Unfortunately, FTX was not trying to do anything particularly interesting as far as I can tell. He was simply stealing customer money to increase his own wealth and political power and influence. Right. The real interesting details would be what were those meetings with SEC's Gary Gensler about and what deals did he have with politicians to impact the crypto market? If we learn more, perhaps we'll share. Patar comes in, though. He's back. It's been a minute with 7,777 sats. And he's taking the other side to Kyron there. He says, uh, you're performing important public service by thoroughly accounting the criminal depravity of SBF and the harm he unleashed on his victims. If you can dissuade even a single crypto curious person from going down the ship coin rabbit hole, then it was all worth it. Friends don't let friends crypto. <laughs> That's fire. That's so Strong good. Strong words, Pitar. Strong words. <laughs> I think friends are going to crypto. I know. The challenge is your friend is about to crypto. He tells you about the project he's interested in, and it's so obviously a scam. It's so obviously hopium, speculative. He's kind of drunk on imagined gains. And you say no, and then he does it anyway, gets wrecked. How do you remain friends? Because the I told you so that you're not saying is so loud, you know, it just it, it fills the room. So anyone who's been successful in telling people that they're getting scammed and then remaining friends, I would love some advice because I feel like I failed at that in the past. Scott boosts in, what is this? A row of fours? Hmm. A row of sails? Geese. Geese? Geese? Okay. Scott boosts <laughs> in a row of geese, 4,444 sats. Would love to hear more coverage. Would love to hear more coverage of hardware, especially with the sats link from CoinKite being up for pre-order now. On the SBF thing, perhaps tone it back a bit and really only report if something particularly interesting happened or you guys thought of some fun analysis. I like this week's info on it, so it was useful. Sorry for not boosting as regularly. I'll try to send stuff in more. Cheers. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Scott. We always do like hearing from you. Uh, yeah, okay. That's that's. I think that's a good guiding principle right there too, Scott. I appreciate that. Smart Growth comes in with 2,000 sats and says, I had some normie coworkers in the car for the FBF segment. Perfect. Keep it up. I don't get that info anywhere else. Well, thank you so much, Smart Growth. Yes, indeed. I have a question if folks would like to boost in with their answer. What is your take on some of the macro coverage in the show? Because that's honestly some of my favorite part because I think it sets the stage for Bitcoin discussion. So I think sometimes I can overindulge there. 
I'd like to know what people think. So give us your take on some of the macroeconomic coverage. We always appreciate that. We appreciate everybody who boosts in. We got 17 boosters this week, and we stacked 271,678 sats. We also want to give a shout out, of course, from Bob B, who sends in some recurring boosts via Albi, and a shout out to all you sat streamers out there who just set it on stream and forget it. The way that really impacts us, besides obviously just being a great way to support the show, is sometimes I open up the dashboard or I'll open up Albi, and it's just every you know minute or so you'll see some see some sats coming in. It's like somebody's listening right now. Like I feel like that person's like real. They're out there listening. It's a pretty neat thing to see. So thank you everybody who does stream it in. We uh, appreciate that as well. Now, how do you boost and support the show? Well, you get a podcast app that does it. That's the best way. Podcastapps.com, newpodcastapps.com, either one. Fountain, Podverse, Castomatic are really popular. Podfans is working on some neat ways that has lots of mechanisms for you to earn sats. So there's a lot of options over there. But if you want to keep your podcast app, your old school 1.0 podcast app, that's fine. Just get Albie. Get Albie.com. Then you top that off via the Lightning Network. So they have some options indirectly. Actually, you can do the on-chain now too. So they have some on-chain options and they have some in-app sat purchase options, or you could just use any Lightning endpoint, Cash App, RoboSats, whatever it might be. You top off Albi, and then you head over to the Podcast Index or Fountain FM, find Bitcoin Dad Pod, and you can boost in from the web, and you can keep your dang podcast app. We'll have links to all those in the show notes, and thank you everybody who supports the show. It is a value for value production. Remember, update your Lightning node now. And this has been the Bitcoin Dad Pond, recorded on October 20th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... Oh, me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.